The scripture reading today is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. You can find it printed on page 9 of your worship folder. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you, because in your sharing of the gospel from the first day until now, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you, <clears throat> because you hold me in your heart, for all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, we ask now that you would meet us here. Help us to be present to your presence among us and to believe that you have arranged this moment, that you see us in all of our glory and all of our brokenness and your response is always to move towards us to restore, renew, and heal. Give us grace to receive that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is going to be the last time you hear from me for a while, just so you know. Um, in the month of July, but starting on June 30th, we're going to have a number, and I'll still be here. I'll be leading worship. I'll be greeting out front. I'll be serving communion and doing other things. But preaching, we're going to have a series of guest preachers come through, and it's going to be a tremendous list of diverse and beautiful and thoughtful voices on this stage. And so as I was preparing this week, I'm like, okay, so I'm going to be around, but I'm not going to be preaching for the next four or five weeks. What do I want to say? What are, what, what are the big things that are, seem to be captivating my brain right now that I want to tell you? So the infliction of what's in my brain onto you begins. But three words come together for me, grace, love, and justice. Grace, love, and justice. Grace from start to finish. Love is what that grace creates, and justice is the application. And I think we see all of this in Paul's letter to the Philippians, especially this early introductory part. Paul has a tendency, if you'll notice this, to, to pack in a whole bunch of things in his introductory remarks. It's a little bit of a clue to what he's going to be talking about the rest of the book in different ways. But he packs a lot of stuff in and does in these first 11 verses of Philippians as well. So let's just get right after it. Grace, the first thing is grace. And I say grace from first to last. Paul starts and addresses this letter. We might say when Paul wants to talk to someone, he begins with this. Grace. Grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The traditional Hellenistic greeting would have been a word sounding like grace a little bit. It would be greetings, karin. But instead, Paul uses charis, and he adds on the traditional greeting of shalom. 
grace to you. It's Paul's way of framing their identity right from the get-go. The first words I want to say to you, Paul would say, is grace. Paul leads with grace. It's his greatest hit, always on the tip of its tongue, it seems. Grace to you. And to drive that home, he says, you all share in God's grace. God gives God's very self to us in Christ. Nothing is deserved. Nothing can be achieved. It is on the house right from the get-go. And this is why in verse 6, Paul states one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Paul says, God began a good work. God began a good work in you. God began a good work. Why are you here right now? Why are you perhaps here searching for God in your life? Why are you coming back to God in your life right now? Maybe that's your story. I want you to consider that it's because God began a good work. It's all grace. God has been doing a good work with you from your very first breath. It's not the path you would always choose or the path that you would understand, but behind it all, and the reason you are sitting in this room right now, I would contend, is that God has begun a work of grace. Robert Farrakhapon says, Grace makes all our efforts to legitimize ourselves irrelevant because it proclaims us already legitimated by the work of someone else without a single effort on our part. But it's grace all the way through. Polk goes on to say in that same verse, God began a great work in you, and then he says, God will bring it to completion. This is why I said it's from grace first to last. God will bring it to completion. Here's what you need to hear. You think, perhaps, that your Christian spirituality is about you believing rightly or believing perfectly or believing without doubt or just believing in general in God. And what I want you to hear today is that grace means becoming more and more convinced that God believes in you. God believes in you has always been present with you, is committed to you, will not walk away from you, but always move towards you as I try to pray almost every week to renew, heal, and restore. Because God who begins the work is the God who will bring it to completion. This means a healthy Christian spirituality, one that can have actual deep authenticity about all the inconsistencies and the contradictions of our life and of reality in general, frankly, where you think where you thinking being a Christian means that you have it all together? Not so much. Here's how Paul describes his perfect Christian life. Are you ready? Here's how Paul describes his perfect Christian life. He says, I do not understand my own actions. <laughs> Can I hear an amen? amen? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That's how Paul describes his perfect Christian life. He says, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. I find it to be a law that when I want to do what's good, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive through the law of sin that dwells in my members. This is Paul's description of his perfect Christian life. So he says about himself, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. How did we ever get the idea that the perfect Christian life is to have it all together? When we have Paul telling us, I don't have it all together. I'm in need of grace at every second. This is what Paul does there. He's completely honest. And when you are convinced that grace is the air you breathe, when you are convinced that grace is the house rule, you know what? You no longer have to pretend to have it all together. You no longer have to pretend. Which means you can actually have the possibility of finally getting to know and be, and be your true self instead of this projected image that we put out there in the world to get approved and to get likes and to get responses and to get money and to get whatever our ego needs, we can actually be honest. We can actually live into authenticity. We actually get to know yourself and rest from the tyranny of establishing your identity by always being approved by other people's eyes. You can be rescued from their constant preening yourself before the mirror of their opinion because you think it would be a nightmare to be really known as you are. A healthy, grace-saturated Christian experience can be the path to you finally becoming an honest and integrated person because you eat, drink, and breathe the grace of God who brings the work he began to completion in you. So let's take today the shackles of perfectionism. You're demanding this with yourself, your, your furrowed brow, your anxiety that you aren't doing it right or not believing right because you aren't. Good news. <laughs> Welcome to City Church. You aren't. You never will. It was Albert Camus who said, life beckons us to make a 100% commitment to something about which we are 51% sure. That's a good one, huh? What you need to know is that God has made a 100% commitment to you about which God is 100% sure. God believes in you. Secondly, love. Because love is how grace is practiced. All of this is said to a community of people. Did you realize that? We need the Southern translation of the Bible once again. Because Paul says, God has begun a work in Thank you. <laughs> 23 years, and I finally had this congregation using the most useful word in the English language, y'all. Exactly. He's talking to a community. It's always a good idea to use that word. I just want you to know. God's grace is given in community. This community was especially precious to Paul. You can hear it in his words. I want you to imagine Paul. He's incarcerated when he's writing this. He's in jail, and he's writing this letter, and I want you to see him writing it with tears. Imagine him sobbing, perhaps. I don't know, but perhaps he was when he writes the following. Now, get that image in your mind. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you. Because if you're sharing in the gospel from the first day until now, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among y'all will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness 
How I long, do you hear the emotion here? How I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. Now think about this for a second. Think about what's going on here. This community, the Philippians, in the Macedonia, eastern, northeastern Greece region. I think I got my geography right. You check me on that later. This community is standing with a man who is incarcerated. They are financially supporting a man who is seen as dangerous to the Roman Empire. We know from other parts of the Bible that this church is particularly um, has a reputation of sacrificial giving. They are willing, as a community, to be associated with an imprisoned person, with a person who has been stigmatized, with a person who is controversial, with a person who is thought of as unstable, who says things that make people uncomfortable, who is not afraid to pull back the curtain on systems and structures that are hurting people, who does not leave those who benefit from unjust systems out of his critique. You know what Paul is? Paul is what southern pastors and politicians back in the civil rights days of the 60s, Paul is, call, Paul is what they would call an agitator. An agitator. Realize that. See what's happening here. Standing with Paul, being associated with Paul, supporting Paul, was an act of solidarity that had all sorts of social costs for people in this community. Family members, friends, people they had long histories with would have asked them if they had lost their minds supporting this weird new group of Jesus followers. And its radical, prophetic voice, Saul, who now calls himself Paul, of Tarsus. These are not big communities in all of these New Testament letters, but very small ones for a reason. They critique the status quo. They were no longer going to be complicit in a tribalistic God who serves only me and mine, be complicit in a system that benefits the wealthy, the powerful, and calls for allegiance to Caesar over devotion to the way of Jesus. This was a courageous community. It was not a particularly popular community. Communities often that are willing to stand with the marginalized, critique the status quo and give voice to the other and talk about hard things rarely are, honestly, rarely. Now I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to get personal with you. I ran this by my wife. She gave me permission to say, yes, you should say this. I know how Paul feels. I'll bet most of you might know how Paul feels. I haven't been physically harmed. I haven't been thrown in jail. I haven't been through anything. Half the stuff, Paul, good Lord, he was lucky to be alive every day of his life. I understand that. I haven't been thrown in jail yet. I have been blogged about, scapegoated. Slandered, betrayed, wrongfully accused, and wrongfully distrusted. And it's horrible. It's horrible. It's painful. And I hesitate to tell you this. 
I hesitate to tell you what's going through actually a lot of pastors' minds, <laughs> not just me. Because you may assume, well, Fred, he's really wounded and bitter and cynical, and, and, and but for my wife, a great board, a great staff, a great therapist, and for you, a community of love who's willing to take risks, who have stood with me. Like Paul, I have a community who shares in the gospel. Partners is another place that says it in translations, in the gospel. So I'm good. But that's my experience. See, you have an experience too, right? You have an experience too. You have stood with our team, with our church. And I bet you've paid a price for it. I bet you have. No doubt you have family members who think you shouldn't be in a church that's willing to meet Jesus in the margins as we have, that's willing to take on the stigma that other stigmatized groups have felt their whole lives, especially from the church, that's willing to question, even deconstruct their faith in order to build something more true, authentic, and holistic. It's not an easy journey, is it? It is a gospel journey. It is. I remember the day that I spoke with Richard Rohr about this. I was lucky enough to have five or ten minutes with him. It just so happened that it was one week before our letter went out in 2015 about inclusion of LGBTQ siblings. He told me this. He said, Fred, most people don't want the gospel. It's too hard. He said they want a belonging system to constantly reconfirm their biases. And honestly, he's talking about me. <laughs> he's talking about everybody's journey to one degree or another. That was me for so many years. It still is part of it for me. But what impresses me about this community is that you friends want the gospel. And if you're looking today to see if this church is for you, know that we are trying to be about always the way of Jesus. And we are a mess sometimes trying to do it, let me tell you. Remember point one about grace. Remember grace? Okay, keep on thinking about that. But I believe San Francisco and the world needs churches who will aspire, because we are far from arrived, that's for sure to be the inclusive community of Jesus, who will aspire to lift every voice, who will take risks, a church, a counseling center, a healing presence in the tenderloin, and a groundbreaking approach to theological education, all willing to risk and make ourselves vulnerable. And in particular, financially vulnerable. And like Paul, I thank God for you. I do. I thank God for you. And I say we need all of us to be all in to support and fully engage the call God has placed on us to be God's presence in San Francisco. I know you all got an email and a letter recently informing you of our budget shortfall. We have the summer to make it up. That's an opportunity right there. 
That's an opportunity, and we can do it if we all participate, especially if the motivation is love. And the last word is justice. Grace, love, justice. Because what Paul prays for, starting in verse 9, is that the love that is present in the community would result in actions, in actions. That love would overflow into justice because as Cornell West says, justice is what love looks like in public. Listen to what Paul says. Are you ready? And this is my prayer. He says in verse 9, that you may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best, so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Now, translators are quick to point out that the word translated just, excuse me, righteousness can just as well be translated justice. And in fact, when you dig into this, you'll begin to see this more and more as I'll talk about it in my sermons. But as you begin to dig into this, it's usually people who are from the bottom and the underprivileged who are noticing that the better word here is justice because they need justice in their life. So let me reread that to you again. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. And this is what Paul says, to help you determine... What is best? Isn't that interesting? To help you determine what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the fruits of justice. What is best equals the fruits of justice that comes through Jesus Christ from the glory and praise of God. So I don't prepare sermons anymore without, or, or excuse me, reading only white theology and white theologians. I am trying my hardest to read primarily actually theologians of color because I believe the deep wisdom that I'm longing for to see and understand better and better is found from the bottom and the underprivileged instead of the top and the overprivileged. Those commentaries and writers all point out the communal nature of this passage. And they see a Paul who is steeped in the Hebrew prophets who are concerned that humans treat one another individually and collectively with justice. Not just with equality, but with equity. What's the difference? Okay, you probably already know, but I'll tell you anyway. Imagine, imagine an eight-foot-high wall. On the other side of that wall is hope. And there are two people who can't see over the wall. One of them is six feet tall, and one of them is five feet tall. Equality would be to give, give each of them a two-and-a-half-foot ladder to stand on, which would be grand for the six-feet-tall person and would be extremely frustrating for the person who is five feet tall. <laughs> that would be equality. Equity would be to give than whatever size ladder they need to see over the wall. God wants everybody to see over the wall, to have hope. And God uses communities of people who understand this to help make it happen. 
by using resources to address the needs of the hopeless, by engaging directly in the lives of the hopeless, by protesting and holding accountable any government that ignores and oppresses the hopeless. Because in Paul's logic, there's little point in possessing grace and love that doesn't result in just actions. He's pragmatic like that. But my point is they all flow together. Which means, yes, the gospel calls Jesus, yes, the gospel that calls Jesus Lord in a day when it could get you killed if you didn't profess publicly that Caesar is Lord, that gospel is inherently political, not partisan, but political. As Richard Rohr said, there's no such thing as a non-political Christianity. This is in your worship folder. You can read it later. To refuse to critique the system or the status quo is to fully support it, which is a political act well disguised. So what does it look like for you to live a life that produces the fruits of justice? How will you actively engage to dismantle oppression? Well, if you look like me, I'll just speak for Fred. If you look like me, there are at least two things, and there are probably 100,000 in two things. One is to ask the question, how will you actively engage in learning about your blind spots? How will you decenter yourself and re-educate yourself? On vacation this year, I read an 862-page biography. Wow. I bought that thing, and I'm like, mm, Lord, help me. 862 pages. You know what? There's a biography of the most photographed man of the 19th century. The most well-traveled American of the 19th century. Anybody know who this was? Say it out loud if you know who it is. Thank you. Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, born a slave in 1818. You know why I bought it? Because I didn't know a thing about him. <laughs> I just can't be a cussing preacher. I'm sorry. I just will not do it. I didn't know a thing about him. You know why I didn't know a thing about him? White supremacy is why I didn't know a thing about him. The most photographed man of the 19th century, the most well-traveled American of the 19th century, one of the most important figures in our history. I didn't know a thing about him. And I promise you right now, I am not trying to be woker than thou with you right now. I really am not. Please believe me. Please believe me, I'm not. But if you look like me, you must fill in the gaps that white supremacy has left out in your life. And how will you actively use your power and privilege to produce fruits of justice in your spheres of influence? It's a question any Jesus follower must ask themselves. I have a friend, Pastor Jess Cass, Keat, Jess Keat, sorry. Um, she says this, you don't need to save the world today. You don't need to solve the world's problems. You don't need to work at the expense of your own well-being. You just need to do your part. 
your small, faithful, good part. Together, all our small parts will make something beautiful. Isn't that great? We'll produce fruits of justice. So, we're done. Grace, love, and justice. They all work in tandem with one another. I don't want to be a grace-only church. I don't want to be a love-only church. And I don't want to be a justice-only church. I want us to be a grace, love, and justice church. To continue to lean into that. Grace tells me I don't have to perform to get God to like me. That God already loves me. I only need to wake up to that love. I need to rehearse and remember the story of that love in Jesus Christ who embodied that grace to the ultimate degree laying down his life for the world. So maybe the first step for you is to receive that grace. To return the love of God in Jesus with your own love. To answer that back with an intention to follow the way of Jesus. Maybe it's to be renewed in that. I mean, grace never runs out. So right now would be a good time to make that intention. And because I've always wanted to put the word asunder in a sermon title. <laughs> you know that's a good word, right? That's a good one. I believe King James gives us that one. I'm not talking about LeBron. Grace, love, and justice, what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Amen. Amen. Gracious God, give us grace to be a church of grace, love, and justice. We are bumbling and stumbling along, trying our best to do this. And give us, give us your wisdom. Give us, give us motivation. Give us energy to do the work you have called us to do. To be your presence in this city. And to trust you with all that we give to you. always remembering how much you have given to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.